Okay, we're going to be back in our series on basic Christian beliefs. And so if you can open up to John chapter 1, John chapter 1. Now I have some new handouts to supplement the old handouts. It's going to be all over the place on my notes. So you might just want to just pay attention and then use the handouts when you get home. And uh, so you can uh, go over the material, reinforce it. We're going to be starting at John chapter 1, what the Apostle John says uh, about Jesus. And we're going to be talking about the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God the Son. Okay, something that all Christians are supposed to believe. We're supposed to worship uh, Jesus as God the Son and trust in him for salvation and acknowledge that he is uh, the Jewish Messiah, the ultimate Jewish King. So uh, let's go to the Lord in a, in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I thank you, Lord, that uh, for the people that are here right now and for our TBF uh, members that they couldn't make it, that you bless them where they're at and hopefully they can stream the, the video online. But I thank you, Lord, that there's a remnant and it's not just our church. There's other churches as well throughout Kitsap County throughout Washington State, throughout America, and throughout the world. There is a remnant, Lord, a remnant that loves you and loves your word and loves your people. And so I'm, I'm so grateful, Lord, that, uh, that there are people here in Kitsap County willing to come to church on Sunday and to study your word and to spend valuable time studying your word. And as we study your written word, Lord, just remind us that you also have a living word. God, the second person of the Trinity. God, the Son, who became a man and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to conquer death for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, in today's message, that you would just bring us a little bit closer to you by bringing us just a little bit closer to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me with your spirit, you would cancel the man, you cancel the fallible man, so that your infallible, your perfect word can be proclaimed from this pulpit. And I pray, Lord, I beg you that I would not lead anyone astray. Pray you open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word. And empower us to apply these truths to our lives so that we could be all that you called us to be. That we would be pleasing in your sight when your son returns to take his stand upon the earth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, about 2,000 years ago, we're going to be celebrating it here in the next few months, but about 2,000 years ago, shepherds and and Israel proclaimed that Messiah had been born in a manger in Bethlehem. In the temple, a few months later, elderly people named Simeon and Anna announced that they had seen the promised one, who was a little infant at the time. Wise men came from the east bearing gifts to give the the child, the Jewish king. And so whispers that Messiah was here were heard throughout Israel. 
But then, of course, King Herod slaughtered babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the child king as the family went into Egypt in hiding. For about a decade, the whispers that Messiah had come probably subsided. But then a 12-year-old boy entered the temple in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. He saw the temple and the buildings. I mean, you know, the little guys walking into Jerusalem for the first time celebrate a feast. They probably looked at these big, gigantic temple and the buildings. They're probably just amazed. But this little guy, 12-year-old guy, he could look at the temple buildings and probably be impressed to a certain degree. But he also recognized that temple was made for me, to honor me, to worship me. And uh, so 12-year-old boy entered Jerusalem on the Passover feast. He saw the temple and the buildings. He spoke with the religious teachers and asked them questions. His parents lost track of him for three days. And you wonder, well, how could they lose track of a 12-year-old kid? Well, when the 12-year-old kid is really, really mature because he happens to be God, um, you probably give him, treat him like an adult, and then you get upset. We don't know where he is. And it takes, you know, probably a day and a half out, and then they got to travel back to look for him. And, uh, but he told his biological mom, Mary, and his stepfather, Joseph, that he had to be about his father's business. So don't let anybody fool you, like in Cotton Patch Gospel and all this other stuff and everything. Uh, don't let anybody fool you. When he's 12 years old, he knew who he was. I don't know how young he was when he figured it out, but when he's going around saying, I had to be about my father's business, he knew exactly who he was. And... Uh, I think at that point, the whispers could be heard again in Israel. Who is this kid? Maybe Herod didn't get the Messiah. Maybe he really did come 12 years ago. And then the whispers died out again. But almost two decades later, the whispers became shouts. There's a guy in the wilderness crying out, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. A voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. Many people thought maybe he's the Messiah, but he said, No, I'm not the Messiah. There's one greater than me who's coming. Carpenter from Nazareth. The Jewish Messiah had been secretly growing up in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The people asked. It was the last place you'd expect Messiah to grow up. If you read the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, closely, the birth accounts, you see that, Dave, that Joseph intended to raise Jesus in Bethlehem, the city of David, just six miles outside of Jerusalem. 
But probably after Jesus was about a year old, when the wise men came, they had to flee to Egypt. When King Herod died, Joseph and Mary and Jesus went back to Bethlehem. But then they saw that Herod's cruelest son was ruling there. And they thought it'd be much better to go to Galilee, to the north, the region, to a city called Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary were originally from, to raise Jesus because... Uh, even though another one of Herod's cruel sons was ruling up there, nobody would expect the Messiah to grow up in, in Nazareth. And so what you have there is, uh, is uh, kind of a Messiah secretly growing up in Nazareth. But one day, under John the Baptist's ministry, the carpenter came out of the water and a dove descended upon him, and a shout from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The whispers became shouts. The shouts could be heard throughout Israel. And the carpenter gave sight to the blind. The deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, even demons fear him and depart as his, at his command. And the shouts continued for the next three years. The shouts continued, whether they be, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. But finally the shouts became, he is risen. He is risen indeed. So who is this carpenter? Today we're going to look at what his colleagues, what his followers, what the apostles wrote about him, and what he said about himself. The most important question you will face in life is that question that Jesus asked his apostles at Caesarea Philippi, the most, probably the most demonic place in the region back then the headquarters of the false god Pan, the god of the, of the netherworld. And Jesus proclaimed, uh, said Peter got it right when he said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And so we're going to look how Jesus identified himself, how his followers identified who he was. We're going to look at that. If we get this question wrong, we lose everything. Okay, I, got, I make posts. I'm a, I was like a big Muhammad Ali fan and a big Sugar Ray Leonard fan. And I always, I didn't fight that way. I was the kind of the Rocky Marciano guys who'd come in and get hit all the time, just try to land one big shot and end the fight. But I appreciated the guys who could dance and kind of look pretty out there and throw jabs and hit you without getting hit. So I post a lot of Sugar Ray Leonard and... Uh, and a lot of Muhammad Ali stuff on Facebook. I'm trying to mess with the algorithms. I'm trying to make them think I'm a fanatical sports fan who happens to be a Christian. But then I thought, you know, I'm wasting my time because Amazon knows exactly who I am. They never recommend boxing books to me. But, uh, but when I make these posts about Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard, um, there's this one brother, I'm not going to mention his name, great guy, but he gets so mad. He doesn't, he doesn't like either one of them. Now, the good thing is, is this guy also loves Jesus, 
And that's the important thing. That's got eternal consequences. Your views of Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, this guy likes the guys who trade punches. He doesn't like the guys who dance around. And um, so you could disagree with me about Muhammad Ali. You can disagree with me about Sugar Ray Leonard. Okay? You could disagree with me about Donald Trump, to be honest with you. But if I got it right, you disagree with me about Jesus, you lose everything. Okay? Jesus is not some inconsequential guy of history. Without Jesus, there would be no history. And so we want to look at the deity of Christ and our basic Christian beliefs. And um, I've got handouts over there, and if you're looking at the handouts, it's the, the page that says the deity of Christ, and then, number one, the apostles call Jesus God. And I look at how the apostles refer to Jesus. And uh, so I want to read the first 14 verses of the Gospel of John. In fact, the first 18 verses, John chapter 1, 1 to 18. And John says this, in the beginning, all right, John knew what he was saying. He knew the Bible. The whole Bible starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's no doubt about what beginning he's talking about. He's talking about the beginning of creation. Okay? In the beginning was the word. So the word, the logos, already was in the beginning. So the, world, the Logos, the Word, is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Right there, that makes no sense, that passage, unless you have something like the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Word can be with God and also be God. Okay? You've got two distinct persons of the Trinity mentioned here. Later on in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, you have all three members of the Trinity mentioned. But in the beginning, before anything was created, the Word already existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. They, they act like Jesus was the first thing God the Father made, and then Jesus made everything else. No, anything that was made was made by Jesus. We saw in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, that Jesus is the creator of the visible realm and the invisible realm. Only the triune God is eternal. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John goes on to say, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's John the Baptist. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Let me tell you something. Most of our pastors today, because we get so much training from critical New Testament. Most of our pastors today think the Apostle of John was written, you know, maybe 80, 85, 90 AD. I doubt you got to remind people that John the Baptist was not the Messiah. 
after 70 AD. In fact, uh, when you find uh, Paul planting the church in Corinth in the book of Acts, Acts chapters 18 and 19, um, about 51 AD, he planted the church, then he left about 50, 53 AD. Right around that time, he still bumps in to some of the disciples of John the Baptist who knew Jesus was the Messiah, but had only been baptized by John the Baptist. In fact, uh, uh, Apollos was like that. And these other guys, they, didn't even, they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit yet. Okay? So I would imagine in the 50s AD, there were still some people thinking maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah, even though John denied it himself. And, uh, and so John has to make this clear. This sounds a lot more like the 50s AD. In fact, uh, James Charlesworth is one of the few guys on the planet who is both an, a New Testament scholar, one of the world's leading New Testament scholars out of Princeton, but he's also one of the world's leading Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. And he says that the theological thought forms of John's gospel coincide very much so with the 50s A.D., and so I think John's gospel, I think it was the last of the gospels to be written. I think the other gospels are written earlier than most people think as well. In my, my hijacking the historical Jesus, I got a chapter in there on redating the New Testament books. And, uh, but he's got, so this is written very early. And he says that John wasn't the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, the Logos, which gives light to every man coming into the world. See, the Greeks had this Logos doctrine. The Greeks couldn't explain, you know, they, they, were, they were doing well with science in ancient times and with philosophy, but then they thought, well, how do we know our reason is telling us the truth? Maybe it's just all a joke. Maybe our reason is just programmed to, to misunderstand things. How can we trust our thinking ability? And so they didn't have the concept of the God of the Bible, so they just invented this Logos. They just, out of thin air, they pulled out the Logos, the word, that maybe there's this non-personal mind, and I don't know how a mind could be non-personal, maybe there's this non-personal mind that enlightens our minds, human minds, and that makes sense of the world of flux, the world of change, so that we could really find out truth about the world in which we live. Now, the big problem with that was their invoking the Logos was arbitrary. And so what John, the Apostle John, is saying here is the Greek philosophers. Philo was a Greek philosopher, and he was Jewish. He had studied Greek philosophy. He was along the Platonic school of thought, later stage of it, Plato's thought. But he talked about the Logos. And John said, the Greeks are right. The Logos does exist and does enlighten our minds. We wouldn't understand anything. We wouldn't know anything without the Logos. The Logos has to turn the switch on so that we could know things. And the Logos enables us to understand the world that he created, the physical world that he created. However, John said, he's telling us here, the Greeks are wrong. The Logos is not some non-personal force like electricity. John's saying the Logos 
is God the Son become a man? And I know him. I broke bread with him. I rested as a teenager. I rested my head on his shoulder. And so let me introduce you to the Logos who was in the beginning with God, who himself is God, who himself created the universe. I mean, it's hard for me to read this and believe this guy was a this guy was a fisherman at one time. And, uh, and I'll tell you, too, the apostle, if Jesus didn't visit him that one time when they were on a the boat, they probably would have just went back to fishing. He had to remind them, I called you to be a fisher of men. And that's like, man, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. You know, he's called us all to be fishers of men. He didn't call us to be fish. Most of us act like God called us to be fish. He's just collecting fish. And then we just sit down in the, our chairs or the pews. Now he's called us to be fishers of men. And hey, after you, I'm not an expert. I've never caught a fish a day in my life. My wife caught a caught a fish. Uh, that's a that's a whole story in itself. Uh, but I never caught a fish in my life. But they tell me you catch a fish and then you got to clean it. Okay. So I'm all for leading people to Christ. But then we got to disciple and we got to clean them up too. And uh, Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, make little sloppy baby Christians and let them flounder around there. But, um, but that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. God the Son who created the world visited his creation and we didn't even recognize him. God became a man and we slept. You know, I, it was this one program, I don't know if it's still on, but I used to like watching every now and then. I didn't think I'd like it, but Undercover Boss. How many have seen Undercover Boss? Okay, there's a few sanctified people out there. Um, uh, and what it is, is you get these big major corporations and the CEO of the corporation goes undercover and gets hired on, like the guy for Subway. Man, I'm telling. I, I mean, I got a lot of respect for people in fast food restaurants. I can't. These young people, they could, they, they can think three or four things at a time, and most of the time, they get my order right. I'd be that guy who gets fired in a day. Well, this one undercover boss for Subway, he was horrible. And he just, he's having a conversation with everybody that was coming in. And they tell me, you've got to keep moving. You've got to keep moving and stuff like that. And, uh, and they, usually end up, they usually end up firing a few people because they don't know that they're yelling at their own boss. And, um, but then they end up promoting people and helping people with college assistance and things like that. Um, but it's interesting to know that we were, we were visited by our undercover boss. I mean, even Isaiah could say, when he walked around, there was no form of majesty that we should look upon him. There's a lot of guys that are preaching that Jesus was ugly. He was not ugly. God's going to become a man. He's not going to become an ugly guy, okay? And um, uh, what we're just saying is, he walked around looking like a hard-working, lower-middle-class carpenter, 
he didn't walk around looking like the king of kings and the lord of lords. Okay? And um, so our undercover boss visited us, and we didn't even recognize him. And uh, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's freaky. Because you got, you know, most of the Bible is the Old Testament. And you got prophecies and predictions of Jesus when he's going to come, when God's going to become a man. You've got uh, types, symbols, and feast days that point to Jesus. The temple points to Jesus. I mean, the holy place in the tabernacle, the portable temple, was covered with animal skin. Wow, let me, I wonder if that's a hint. The presence of God covered by skin. Okay? All the animal sacrifices that were fulfilled. Uh, and the feast days fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Rose from the dead is the, the, the feast on the feast of first fruits. Okay? Um, all these hints, yet his own people missed him when he came. And let's not get arrogant. Could we do the same thing the Jews did? With the Jews, they were very patriotic, so they really cherished the Old Testament passages that talked about Messiah being a conqueror and defeating the pagans on behalf of the Jewish people. And they like to ignore the passages talking about the Messiah being humiliated and suffering, being beaten, and dying. Okay? Uh, they also, we're going to see, they also ignored a few passages which said that Messiah, when he comes, Messiah will be Yahweh himself. That God himself, the creator, will become a man. In fact, I heard Ben Shapiro. How many people know Ben Shapiro? He's a Jewish guy. He's very conservative in his politics. But I think he told, I think it was William Lane Craig once, a Christian apologist, he told him that, uh, well, they, they were talking about Christianity and Judaism. He said, well, the, the number one tenet of Judaism is that God could not become a man. And I listened to that, and I, I was, uh, I thought that was rather interesting because that's the number one tenet of Islam, that God could not become a man, not Judaism. It only became a tenet of Judaism after God did become a man, and they didn't like him. He wasn't the kind of Messiah we wanted, okay? Um, but had they read and cherished Isaiah more closely, okay, and Jeremiah and Micah and the other prophets, they would see that when Messiah and Zechariah, when Messiah comes to earth, he's going to be God incarnate. But he came to his own, his own people and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So praise God, even though the world rejected him and the Jews rejected him, there were some who received him. And received a right, a right that we could not earn, a right to become his children. And we were born again by God's will. God chose that we would be born again. So verse 14, and the word became flesh. God the Son became a man and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. 
And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me. He was six, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Okay? Because Jesus is eternal. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses. The law condemns. The law was given through Moses, but grace, grace saves. God's unmerited favor, we can't earn it. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son. Some manuscripts read the only begotten God or God the only begotten. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. You know, I've actually heard professing Christians, in fact, one said it at a Bible study, and I just kind of, there's a fellow Marine that I had, quote-unquote, led to the Lord. I guess I didn't explain the gospel clearly enough to him. And, uh, but the Bible teacher asked for Bible questions, and, um, and he raised his hand and blurted out, uh, um, did you ever wonder what it would be like if God became a man? And I was like, ouch, dude. You know, I had, been, I had been saved like three months at the time, you know. I was like, ouch, dude. That's, that's what Christianity is. God, God the Son became a man. You didn't get that? You don't get that memo. You don't even know him. So we had, to, we had to slow everything down and lead this guy to Christ because I guess the first time when I tried to lead him to Christ, he didn't get it. But if, if you miss out on this, um, the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son become a man. If you miss out on that, you miss out on everything. This is not some, oh, it's just a theological. What did your pastor preach on today? Oh, he's just preaching on theology. Nothing practical. Nothing practical. If Jesus is God, I think there's some application there. I need to worship him. I need to live for him. Not live for myself. If Jesus is God, everything changes. Yeah, we got, you know, just, I don't know. Self-help books sell really well, so we're trying to turn our churches into Christian, the Christian version of self-help. So everything's got to be practical. Let me tell you, God does want you to have a godly home. God does want you to work hard at work and provide for your family. Um, God does want you to love one another and all, okay? But don't put the cart before the horse. You got to get things right with God before you can get things right with mankind. And there's an application once you're saved, but we like to just pass over these theological things and then move on. I, I once... We're at a restaurant in Bremerton. It's no longer there. It used to be called Pat's Cookie Jar. And there was a Christian brother in there, a pastor. And he had a reputation. He was growing a pretty big church at the time. He had a reputation of really preaching a lot of milk at best, kind of self-help at worst. And so I really didn't think we'd get along, but... 
he was sitting there having lunch with another gentleman and he was explaining the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And I was amazed because he was, you know, I teach college level courses on Roman Catholicism. I was amazed that he was able to split hairs where they needed to be split. And so all I could think is this guy was grounded in the word, grounded in his theology, but they taught him in seminary. Now, don't teach any of this stuff to your people. You might have two or three theologians in your congregation. You could teach them on a side, but just make it real, real simple. And all. Hey, let me tell you, the gospel message is simple. No doubt about it. But God didn't write us a business card. He didn't give us a tract. And I'm not saying those things are bad. But I mean, if John 3.16 was all you had to know, okay, we'd all be Bible experts. But the fact of the matter is God wrote us 66 books. And the reason why I got good job security, because um, I'm never going to figure this thing out, you know, Probably throughout eternity, God's going to be explaining some passages to me. And um, uh, so if we're going to put on the mind of Christ, it's more than just the simple salvation message. And, um, and so uh, the deity of Christ, all Christians should know this. So right here, the apostles called Jesus God. John John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. John calls Jesus God. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Okay? And there's a the Granville Sharp rule of New Testament Greek tells us both God and Savior have to refer to Jesus there. So Peter calls Jesus God. Uh, Paul calls Jesus God numerous times. Look, look at Romans 9.5. Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 9 and verse 5. He's talking about the advantages of the Jews. He's really, he, he's really feeling crushed. He has great sorrow because... Many of the Jews, most of the Jews back then were not accepting Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, as God, God incarnate. And he had great sorrow and great grief in his heart. But then he starts talking about, in verse 3, you know, he, he, he said, I would rather be accursed and hellbound if that would save my countrymen who are Israelites, but then he starts talking about some, in verse 4 and 5, he starts talking about some of the advantages of being Jewish. I mean, they were the custodians of God's word, the protectors of God's word. If God didn't deal harshly with the Jews and protect them, you know, our Bibles today would contain Gnostic writings, it would probably contain the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So they were trusted with the oracles of God. And then he says in verse 5, of whom are the fathers, the Greek, the, the, the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, Messiah came. Then it talks about Messiah, 
who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Okay, some translations aren't real clear on it. The New King James Version and the NIV are really clear on that, that Jesus is being called God there. You look a little further in Romans chapter 10. Paul says this of Jesus, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you, by the way, that's the same way in the Greek, the Lord Jesus is the same as saying Jesus is Lord. Okay? And at that particular point, you had to say Caesar is Lord or you'd be executed. You had to say Caesar is Lord and then offer incense to the Roman gods. They say, look, the Pax Romanus, we gave you peace, the peace of Rome. Yeah, well, you, you conquered all our people, and then you force us to pay taxes. With that kind of peace, who needs war? But we gave you peace, so you got to pay taxes to us, but you got to say Caesar is Lord. Well, the Jews refused. They said, no, Yahweh is Lord. And they, they bothered the Romans so much, the Romans eventually gave them an exemption. Well, early in the history of the church, the pagan Romans considered the Christians to be just a branch of Judaism. To be honest with you, uh, the Christian branch of Judaism is true, fulfilled Judaism. Because we, whether Jew or Gentile, embrace the Jewish Messiah and trust in him for salvation and worship him as God. And so the Christians refused to say Caesar is Lord. They said uh, Jesus is Lord. Okay? And, um, and many, uh, now, they had that exemption. By 70 AD, the Romans were fed up with the Jews. And basically, even, even a few years before then, because of the riots that were caused by the preaching of the gospel, many Christians were already being put to death. And so, eventually, you reach the point, when Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, you could get in some trouble for saying Jesus is Lord. Okay? Um, what, I, what is going on right now, you know, you could read my writings on the subject, something I've been writing on since the late 1980s. I was a kook for a long time, but I became a smart guy recently, and everybody's saying, oh, wow, I'm apologizing for calling me a kook back in the 1980s when I said this stuff was coming down. But... Um, Nietzsche was right, the German atheist, that in the 19th century, among the movers and shakers of Western civilization, was the death of God. They rejected God. Nietzsche was right that the 20th century would then bring about, because if God is dead, then truth, morality, and meaning are dead. But then I argued along the lines of Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis that the 21st century would bring about the death of man. And that's what we're seeing right now. When you turn on your television, it says we're seeing the death of man. But the other side of the death of man, that coin, the other side of that coin, is the deification of the state. When the state deifies itself and, is, and it considers itself, identifies itself as God, man dies. All of a sudden, you have no human rights. Okay? <clears throat> that's what we're seeing now. And so I feel led to, to preach God's word, but to speak out against the deification of the state. I'm telling you right now, if, if you're a pastor 
and you're smashing all the idols except the state, you're not doing your job, bro. We got to smash all idols. Because there's one God, and this God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If the state wants to deify itself... Now keep in mind, back then, if you didn't want to say Caesar is Lord, you could hide. Where are you going to hide now? Where are you going to hide? There's no place to go. I mean, Dietrich von Hildebrand, he opposed Hitler. He's a Roman Catholic philosopher. Very courageous man. When the Nazis took over in Germany, he fled to Austria. The Nazis took over Austria, he fled elsewhere in Europe. When the Nazis took over Europe, he fled to America and lived peacefully and taught philosophy at Fordham until he died in the 1970s. Okay? So in his notes, on his, on his autobiography, I wrote, when America falls, where are we going to go? You know where we're going to go? When America falls, and by the way, John with the training courses and stuff like that, and the guys that are helping out with that, Gary and Michael, that is great stuff, okay? But in the end, you do the best you can to take care of your family. But in the end, when America falls, the only place to really go is to your knees. And you bow before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you thank him that though man can kill the body, King Jesus is going to protect your soul. And, um, but, uh, but back then it was there. Paul said, look, if you're a believer, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay. Now, in what way is Jesus being called Lord? Is Jesus like, okay, he's a, he's a high religious authority or whatever? What way? Well, this passage goes down, down to verse 13, and he keeps talking about the Lord, okay? And then he says in verse 13, forever who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now there he's quoting from Joel chapter 2 verse 32. What is the word Lord in Joel 2.32? In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. So when Paul says that we have to believe, we have to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead to be saved, he's saying we have to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter from Nazareth. We have to acknowledge that he is God incarnate. Okay? Now, right now, well, you want to read a good book, read John Lennox's uh, 2084. And, and you could probably chop off 50 years. It's probably coming down in 2034. But whatever the case, um, he, he's dealing with Harari, Yuval Noah Harari, the guy in his, his homo deus, where man is trying to become God, and through technology he thinks some superhumans are going to be machine-human hybrids and are going to become gods and live to be 150 years old, and, and AI is going to do all our work. We're going to do all these useless humans. And, um, but John Lennox, 
Christian, who's an Oxford scholar, he points out this was the problem right at the beginning. How do we get in the mess we're in? We wanted to become God. Okay? And so what he's saying, look, there's only one homo deus. There's only one man who is God. His name is Jesus. Okay? And thanks, thanks to the Holy Spirit, using the apostles, we get the memo. Okay? Jesus is God incarnate. When man tries to become God, when the government tries to become God, we got to say with, with Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Okay? And they might say, hey, we're going to have to imprison you. We're going to have to try to re-indoctrinate you. We're going to have to execute you. Look, you got to do what you got to do. I got to do what I got to do. And my God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My God is the God of Peter, Paul, and John. My God is God, the second person of the Trinity, become a man. His name is Jesus. And you want to deify the state? I'm going to proclaim from the rooftops. The state is a false God. Don't. The state wants you to totally depend on a state. No, you depend on the Lord. And sometimes the Lord will take care of you through your family and your friends and provide you with a job and all, but it's all the good stuff is coming from the Lord. Okay? And uh, you, you couldn't do it in your own strength. It's the Lord. And, um, but when the state wants us to worship it, we got to say, uh, you know, I doubt he'd understand what I'm saying, but, I mean, if the president were here right now, I could tell him, I'd say, hey, dude, no king but Jesus. I'll pay my taxes. I'll be a good citizen. But there's something about this government doesn't like good citizens anymore. If the good citizens are a little bit too loud, they'll, they'll lock us up. Hey, I'm telling you, read the book of Acts. It's just America is just becoming normal. Okay? It's just becoming normal. This is the way the world... You know, Jesus said, if you find the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. If there's people out there that hate me, I shouldn't get a big head and think, wow, I'm important enough to be hated. No, they only hate me because they hate Jesus. And I just keep talking about the one they hate. But we got to say Jesus is Lord. But Jesus, it's in the context of the Lord being Yahweh. Paul could also say in Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is human. But he's fully God. Titus 2.13, Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, just like Peter did. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul tells us there, um, he's preaching, and he said that God purchased the church with his blood. Well, guess what? God the Father never bled. God the Holy Spirit never bled. It was Jesus who bled. So that means Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is God, and he purchased the church um, with his blood. Look at, uh, uh, well, turn to John 20. 
John 20. And Paul also said in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, I'm just going to paraphrase that here, but we should have the same attitude that Jesus had. We should put on the mind of Christ. Just as Jesus was willing to suffer for others and put the needs of others before his own, that's the way we should be. And then he says, Jesus, who continues to exist in nature as God, he didn't cease to be God, he emptied himself of his reputation by becoming a man, okay, taking on the form of a human, becoming a man, and then he even humbled himself to the point of death, even the most shameful way to die, death on a cross. Therefore God the Father highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They're on the same team. When you worship Jesus, it makes God the Father and God the Holy Spirit happy. Okay? But every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You just go back to Isaiah 45, verse 23. That's all done to Yahweh. Okay? So, uh, uh, but look at, look at John 20. We're just going to wrap it up just with the, the apostles calling Jesus God. Just a couple passages here. John 20, verses 26 to 29. This was... Uh, Jesus appears to the apostles the day that he rose from the dead, the Sunday that he rose from the dead, and uh, Thomas is not there. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap. He was probably a rough dude because they were too afraid to leave. He was probably the guy running errands for them. He wasn't there. They told him, we saw him, he was ridden from the dead, and he's like, I ain't going to believe it till I see it, you know? Uh, he was the only one of the apostles who said, hey, if Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem and get killed... Let's go and die with them. Um, but John 20, 26 to 29. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, because Thomas said, I'll, I'll only believe if I could touch his wounds. Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Hakoriasmu kahathiasmu in the Greek. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now some people say, oh, that promotes blind faith. No, it doesn't. He had sincere eyewitness testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead, which is all that we have, by the way. And that's enough evidence for us to believe. When the atheist says, oh, there's not enough evidence. Look, there's not only enough evidence for God's existence, there's enough evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? And um, you want to go against the evidence there. But Downing Thomas called Jesus, okay, uh, his Koryas, his Lord, and his God, his Theos. More than likely, Downing Thomas, I could show you with an in-depth study of the book of Acts, more than likely, Downing Thomas, the apostles talked to themselves in Hebrew. 
not in Greek. John's writing this in Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek to go out to the whole world. Okay? And um, Matthew's Gospel may have originally, uh, maybe even a smaller edition, may have been written in Hebrew first and then translated into Greek according to Papias, the early church father, one of the apostolic fathers. More than likely, what Thomas called Jesus was not kurios and theos. He probably called them that with the Old Testament equivalent. He called them Yahweh and Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And Yahweh is the I am who I am. He spoke to Moses from the burning bush. We don't have time to turn there, but even in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23... When Matthew says that Jesus was born of a virgin, he quotes from Isaiah 7.14, where it says that his name, this child born of a virgin, his name shall be called Emmanuel. Matthew translates that for us and says, which means God with us. Why would you call the Messiah Emmanuel, God with us, unless he is God with us? God become a man. Now, by the way, uh, when I first became a Christian, I was looking for Jesus being called God, Jesus being called God, Jesus being called God. Let me tell you, the word for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, even the false gods were called Elohim. Okay? Um, but only the true God was called Yahweh. And when you look at the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was translated hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, the most common way to translate the Old Testament Yahweh, the Old Testament word Yahweh, the I am who I am, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, the most common way to translate it was with the word kurios. And so every time Jesus is called Lord, or hakurios, the Lord, in a religious context, he's being called Yahweh. Okay, In fact, I think that's why one of the reasons why John wrote his gospel was because the first three gospels made it real clear Jesus is God to the Hebrew mindset. And I think John said, well, let me talk about those times where Jesus also claimed to be Theos and, um, and made even clearer claims to be God, which really offended the Jews. You know, before Abraham was born, I am. I and the Father are one. Okay. Um, but whatever the case, uh, Hakurias, the Lord. And that's, that was his main title, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Larry Hurtado wrote a book titled The Lord Jesus Christ, where he argued the very first prayers. The, the book is like this thick. He's a New Testament scholar, uh, professor at the University of Edinburgh. Um, that the early church, just in their hymns and their prayers showed that they, they understood from the earliest days of Christianity that Jesus was equally God with God the Father. And some of the early churches, it took them a little while to figure out the Holy Spirit. Paul figured it out from day one. You can see his benedictions and his blessings. Um, but he titled the book, The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, Hakorias. He's Yahweh, his name is Jesus, and he is the Christ. He is the Jewish uh, Messiah. And so you get passages like John and John 20, 28, and then you get passages where, where he's doubting Thomas says, my Lord and my God, 
And then you get passages like Acts 10, 36, which make it clear. If not, you know, calling Jesus the Lord in a religious sense and saying, no, Caesar isn't Lord. No, the pagan gods are not lords. There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus. Uh, but in case that's not clear enough, uh, Acts 10, 36, and we'll close with this today. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, this is Peter preaching, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, he is Lord of all. So, I mean, you could have, the word kurios could be used of a landlord. Okay, it could be used of your boss. Um, but when Peter says Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. I remember one day I was at Cross Point, the school I teach at, it's called King's West. And I walked in there, and there were two little boys at the urinal. And so I just walked by them. I went to the stall. And um, as I was leaving, one of them said, uh, You're the boss of all. <laughs> and I was like, Kids, you're freaking me out. You know, so I was like, no, Jesus is the boss of all. And they, one of the two kids, he shook his head like, like, what an idiot. This guy's an adult. He's an idiot. He said, you're the boss of all. And I was like, what in the world is this guy talking about? So I immediately went from the bathroom to the office of the elementary school principal. It was Becky Morris at the time. And... Um, I said, what's this with your little kids? I don't know, they were kindergarten or first graders? I was in the bathroom and they were telling me I'm the, I'm the boss of all. And she said, oh, okay, yeah, yesterday I went and talked to them. I had to go give a little talk, introduce the kids to the school and everything. And I told them that uh, Mr. Sweeney is the principal. And they said, well, what's the principal? The little kids said, no, so she didn't know how to explain it. So she said, well, he's the boss of all. So the first adult male that they saw was me and they thought oh he must be the boss of all <laughs> no and, and if you call Mr. Sweeney and they're great friends great buddies with Nick Sweeney if I pointed at him I said look it's the boss of all you know what he would say he'd say no Jesus is the boss of all you call Phil Fernandez the boss of all no Jesus is the boss of all you call Nick Sweeney the boss of all no Jesus is the boss of all but I'll tell you something. You call the guy in the White House the boss of all? No. Jesus is the boss of all. You call Bill Gates the boss of all? No. Jesus is the boss of all. You know, this is going to be on Seattle Radio. This is going to take some people off. Hey, let, you gotta, we got to shut up about the truth. We can't proclaim the truth. We might as well not talk at all. Klaus Schwab, you're not the boss of all. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God the Son become a man. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he visited us. He visited this planet. And he came not to condemn us. We already condemned ourselves. He came to save us. He came to die on the cross for our sins. 
And so you think I'm going to bow before Bill Gates? You, I mean, there are billionaires out there that control people, want to rule the world and depopulate the planet. What a bunch of kooks. I don't care if a guy's rich or if a guy's poor. If you're not trusting in Jesus for salvation and worshiping him as God, you're a loser. And people say, well, that's cruel. Let me tell you something. I, like you, I was conceived as a loser. We were all conceived as losers. Because grandma and grandma and grandpa, Adam and Eve, back in the garden, they blew it. We were conceived as losers, but we don't have to be losers anymore. And there's a lot of powerful people on earth that want to remain losers. It's not my fault. But I'm not going to side with King Herod. Declare war on Jesus. I'm not going to side with Satan. Declare war on Jesus. I'm going to side with the shepherds. I'm going to side with the wise men. Bring him gifts. And worship him. Because Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is God the Son become a man. And because he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to conquer death for us and promised to return, we have hope. My hope is in Jesus and your hope should be in Jesus too. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you uh, for your written word, Lord, so that we could study your word and through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit understand your word and understand salvation and, and come to Jesus for salvation. But we, even more than your written word, Lord, your living word, the Logos, God the Son, become a man. May we all acknowledge we're sinners. We can't save ourselves. May we trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus, alone for salvation. May we acknowledge he is the only Savior. But may we also worship him as God. He is the I am who I am. Yahweh who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He is the God who visited Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. May we worship Jesus as God. May our worship not just be in songs and in studying the word, but also in every breath that we breathe, everything that we do, May we live for the Lord Jesus, who is our God and Savior, rather than living for ourselves. And Lord, we pray for all these evil, demonic leaders around the globe that hate you. And they want to bring about uh, this man can become God type of lie through technology, 
We pray, Lord, that uh, you would chip away at their hardened hearts. That you would cause them to come to the salvation that is only offered through your Son, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as things get worse and worse for us, for the church here on the planet Earth, remind us, ultimately, we're not citizens of Earth, we're citizens of Heaven. And remind us that the day will come when your Son, King Jesus, will take his stand upon the Earth and make things right on planet Earth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.